Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns. Great. My, my guest today is Laurel Collins, Member of Parliament for Victoria. Before becoming MP, Laurel served as a City of Victoria Councillor, which is where we first met, uh, co-founded Divest Victoria, worked with the Victoria Women in Need, researched climate uh, mitigation and displacement, and worked with the UN in northern Uganda to create durable solutions for those displaced by conflict. Laurel has taught classes at my alma mater, uh, being University of Victoria, and is co-author of a book by the uh, title of Women Education, uh, sorry, Women, Adult Education, and Leadership in Canada. Thanks for being on the show today, Laurel. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm really happy to have you here. I know it's been a number of months in the, in the planning. Um, we've just talked about some of the topics, so just for those listeners, we're going to talk about climate change in the oil and gas industry. Um, I actually, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, I'd like to talk about income inequality, if we can touch on that. Great. Um, I want to talk about dental care, because I know the NDP has been big on dental care and a universal pharma care program for uh, Canadians across the country. And, uh, and, and any other topics that we can maybe dive into in this uh, approximate hour that we're going to have this conversation. But before we go into all that, maybe you can let the listeners hear, because you're a new MP, this is your first time, and you, your, your career is kind of catapulted from uh, a very short stint as a city of Victoria city councillor to amazingly winning this, uh, not, not that the odds were totally against you, but you had a tough run in Victoria Centre against, who was your main competitor there with the Green Party? Uh, it was Roussel Coy. Roussel Coy. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of talk about her. She was kind of the shoe in, um, but you have a great ground game. I know that. And you hustle. We had an incredible team of organizers and volunteers. And honestly, I, yeah, I'm just ever grateful for their tireless work. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And it's been six months roughly now since the election, right? Yeah. Um, so can you maybe now that you've got six months under uh, to digest this, can you kind of reflect back on how that campaign went and why do you think it was successful? Yeah, you know, uh, I think the combination of us having uh, some volunteers and organizers who had never been involved in politics before who uh, or who were coming out of just only been having been involved in municipal campaigns, uh, along with uh, organizers and volunteers who had been doing this again and again and again campaign after campaign and honestly it was in my opinion their dedication and hard work that really uh, made our campaign so successful um, and you know also watching Jagmeet and his uh, national campaign and really how he yeah just captured people and spoke to what's really going on for Canadians uh, I think it also made a big impact on on our election yeah great yeah. Uh, now, you won pretty handedly, did you, or was it, it was, a pretty tight race? It was actually pretty tight. It was yeah. um, about 3.3%, yeah. um, which, yeah, it's a fairly small margin. Yeah. <laughs> we have a really high voter turnout in Victoria, yeah. uh, so it still means uh, over 2,000 votes. But, uh, yeah, I feel very lucky to live in a city with such high engagement. The engagement yeah. It's the thing that I yeah love the most about my community. We just have people who are tapped in, who care, who are willing to take time to vote, but also to be engaged in their community. Do you think it helped that these people saw your name on the, on the ticket uh, through the municipal election only about a year earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think name recognition in elections are, it's uh, incredibly valuable. Yeah. Uh, and 
people knowing kind of where you stand. So people had heard me uh, in the municipal election. They'd seen my work on council. They know the kind of values that I stand for and that I will work tirelessly to represent them in Ottawa. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know you're big on climate change. I think it's your probably number one modus operandi, if I could say. The reason I'm in politics, absolutely. So why did you go with the NDP and not the Green Party? That's what I always kind of wonder. I've never had a chance to ask you that. Yeah. For me, uh, the only way that we are going to effectively address the climate crisis is if we understand the interconnection between social inequality and the climate crisis. And if we forget that interconnection, I don't think we're going to meet our climate targets. I also think that, you know, climate change is going to disproportionately impact people who are marginalized, who uh, are in lower income brackets, I mean, on a global scale, who uh, are in countries um, who are that are economically disadvantaged. And so for me, what I saw in the NDP and what I continue to see in the people who are elected to uh, parliament under the NDP banner is this deep understanding of how the climate crisis and social inequality are interconnected. And that uh, in our solutions, when we're thinking about how we're actually going to address this crisis, it means we have to invest in transit. It means we have to uh, help people retrofit their homes. It means we have to have, you know, energy efficient uh housing, affordable housing for all, the kind of climate solutions that I think are going to be the most effective are the ones that also make life more affordable for people, also build community and (laughs) create the kind of society that I want to live in. And honestly, I think if we kind of only focus on the environment without that lens of social inequality, we just, we we are not going to be effective. Okay. And you felt that the NDP had that kind of the best sort of um, vision on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, when did you first realize that you were going to uh, run for S- S- Victoria Center under the NDP banner? Was there a, a, a process involved? <laughs> yeah. In uh, so Murray Rankin, uh, the former MP, yeah. had a conversation with me where he asked me to run. Uh, initially, I was a flat-out no. <laughs> I love... I loved my job on city council. It is incredibly fulfilling to be there. And I'm so proud of the work that the Victoria City Council has been doing when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to addressing housing affordability. Uh, yeah, there's been some really bold, amazing steps taken forward. Um, and after my conversation with Murray, he also got a number of other people to co- to contact me. I had tons of my supporters and the people in my community come and ask me to run. Uh, and it was really, yeah, it was a number of conversations with Murray, but then also with Carol James, with a number of other folks who asked me to think about uh, what, where I can make the biggest impact. And... I know that the Victoria City Council is going to continue to do amazing work there. They're going to carry on the vision that I uh, kind of brought to the table as well. Yeah. Uh, and really, when I looked at our current federal government and the actual action that's being taken on housing affordability, the actual action that's being taken on the climate crisis, I don't think we are seeing real leadership at the federal level. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's what I want to bring. Okay. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, that's good. Well, that's a good segue into um, you and one of your uh, tweets. And by the way, I've I've, I've watched um, some of your clips uh, in the House of Commons. Um, When when you got up there to stand and speak in the House of Commons for the very first time, 
I mean, if I'm going to use a sports analogy as a guy who plays, always played hockey, to me it'd be like stepping on the uh, ice of an NHL hockey team for the first time. That's got to be a pretty moment, memorable moment for you, was it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do you remember what it was? The yeah, first time? Was absolutely. The what did you, what did you... It was on the climate crisis. Right. Uh, and I talked about how youth... Uh, across Canada are mobilizing and are taking to the streets to really bring attention to the crisis that we are in and how they are calling for bold action. They are calling for our elected officials to step up and stand with them in leadership for the climate. Yeah. Uh, and was it nerve-wracking? It was, it was absolutely nerve-wracking. <laughs> um, yeah, there's uh, something about being in the House of Commons and knowing that you are there representing your community, knowing, yeah, it is... And all eyes are on you. Yeah, like it's pretty, yeah, yeah, it was really yeah. incredible. Yeah, awesome. Uh, well, one of, the, one of the tweets you mentioned, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline is a sinking ship. Um, do you want to elaborate more on your view of pipelines? And I do want to get in, as I said to you before we started filming, I want to get into some specifics. Yeah. And so we, we should, let's dive into this topic Great. because um, having, I'm, I'm, I'm one who's very keen on climate, addressing climate, yeah. the climate issue. I wouldn't know, so I, wouldn't know, I don't know if I would agree that it's a climate crisis because to me the word crisis means you absolutely put everything down and allocate 100% of your resources to a crisis. Um, so I feel like that word is strongly maybe misused, um, but I definitely believe there's climate change. There's no doubt in my mind, and I think that we all have to do our best. And in fact, the part that I get frustrated with is that I try and practice this at the under the philosophy of think globally, act locally. And I find that a lot of people are hypocritical in that. And I mean, maybe even I am, but uh, um, I also have traveled to Alberta. I, I do it a lot in my work. And I've traveled to Saskatchewan. Have you have you been to those provinces before yourself? I have. Yeah. Have you been out to the rural communities where the oil and gas patches are? That I have not done. No? Yeah. I you know I was out there. I was out in in between. I was in the Red Deer area and kind of Edmonton uh, just a couple of months ago when it was freezing cold. I went to go rent a car from Avis in Edmonton. The only vehicle they had were these monster F three fifty trucks. Like that was the only option. It was like <laughs> I had a choice of white, white, or white. And there was like eighteen of them in a line. Yeah. And I couldn't pick up anything other than that. And it was about minus 10, 15 degrees, drove from Edmonton to Calgary on a three day road trip. And I was with my colleague who was with me on this trip who grew up in Edmonton. And I said to him, Man, I can see why the people out here would be so frustrated with people like you, Laurel Collins, who live in this cushy little part of the world called Victoria. And I'm only saying that because I'm from Victoria. No, I'm, I and agree. It, Victoria is a lovely, it, it, cushy a place to live. Right? <laughs> it's, it's an amazing place to live. And so it's easy to say, oh yeah, let's have like hydroelectricity and no car, you know, no, no uh, fossil fuels being burned. But man, when it's in the dead of winter, it's minus 15 degrees and that's all you got out there. It's a barren environment. And the only thing that keeps you alive is oil and gas. And it's also your family's livelihood and your family's family's livelihood. Like, how do you how do you address that? Yeah, and honestly, I think for Albertans, and you know, we've seen in the past month, nineteen thousand people in Alberta lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think their concerns are very valid. You know, we want to make sure that we're taking care of workers across Canada, but especially workers who are losing their jobs in those numbers. Uh, I think the 
The answer, though, is not investing in more fossil fuel in- infrastructure. We know uh, that we are going to need to transition as rapidly as possible. The answer is to actually invest in the kind of family-sustaining, good-quality jobs in the low-carbon economy. And I think if we had done that decades ago, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in right now well, mm-hmm. where Albertans are struggling mm-hmm. and they are feeling that. Uh, and when it comes to Trans Mountain, you know, I have long uh, been long in opposition to this project. Uh, but I think when you see our federal government declare a climate emergency one day, and then the very next day turn around and buy a, a pipeline like, oh yeah, for $4.6 billion. Right? Yeah. And now, now they're saying they want to borrow $12.6 billion to complete the construction. Imagine what we could do if we took that $12.6 billion and actually invested it into Alberta, invested it into co- the kind of uh, green technology solutions we want, into transit, into retrofits of house- for housing, yeah. into the kind of uh, job generation that is actually going to move us into the future, is actually going to move us forward and actually support the people and the workers across Canada. Okay. So let's let's get, uh, so I love that idea. Philosophically, I think it's great. How do we get there? I mean, if you look at a town like Airdrie, north of Calgary, or you get into Red Deer, which is the sort of, uh, it's the main community between Edmonton and Calgary, and this is oil bed, this is, uh, sorry, this is oil country, um, and let's say you can convince these people to t- turn their backs on an industry that supported multiple generations of their families. How do you actually get there? Like what, when you say the n- new green economy, what was the term you used again? <laughs> I'm not sure what I okay. just used, but um, just what, what would be examples? Yeah. Like how if you're if you're in Red Deer yeah. and you're you're an unemployed oil worker yeah. and you're trying to and you're plugging away, what, yeah. what kind of solution would the NDP provide to you if they were if you were governing the country? Yeah, you know, so one of the pieces is around retrofits for housing. Okay. You know, this is a um, if we were to invest in retrofits uh, in the way that is needed, we know that across Canada, buildings uh, are third highest emitters of greenhouse gases. Uh, we need to rapidly retrofit all of our buildings if we have any hope of meeting our Paris Agreement targets. Um, and if the government was willing to put the kind of money that they have just committed to the construction of Trans Mountain into retrofitting homes across Canada, it would create tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of jobs in in the communities where people live right now. And so you're saying like for real, like to get really granular. So instead of putting $12 billion into a pipeline, uh, the government takes maybe even a fraction Fraction of that that. and puts it into the construction materials business and construction jobs where people can go into a house that was built in the early 80s with single pane windows uh, and limited insulation and they go and they maybe do a new building envelope and a double pane glass and that type of thing. Is that what you're talking about? So something like that. So you'd both have uh, retrofit programs. So say for um, a family who wants to retrofit their home, yeah. even for families who own their own homes, oftentimes they have kids, they have daycare costs, they, uh, you know, childcare is expensive, mortgages are expensive. Retrofitting your home is not going to be on the top of the list of things to do. Right. <laughs> um, and we know we need all of those homes retrofitted. And so if we were to create uh, some kind of kind of bank, uh, climate bank of money where people could actually just take a no interest or a very low interest loan out. Um, so anything that they actually are going to spend on that retrofit will come out of this climate bank. Okay. Uh, 
whatever they save on their power bill moving forward. Uh, so say it takes, um, say they get double pane windows, a solar panel, uh, more insulation, and whatever the cost of the upfront cost would just come out of that climate bank. Okay. Then over the next five, 12 years, however long it takes, whatever they save on their power bill will go into paying that upfront cost down. I see. And then after, once that's totally paid down, they just get to save on their power bill. The beauty of this kind of solution is that it doesn't cost families anything to retrofit their homes. It means yeah. that we have a huge uptick. We've seen it in other jurisdictions, yeah. huge uptick in retrofits. It means it creates those good um, family sustaining jobs for yeah. folks who are moving into that industry. Uh, it also you know, saves families once that upfront cost has been uh, taken care of. It saves families hundreds of dollars on their power bill moving forward. Yeah. Uh, we want to find climate solutions that make life more affordable for Canadians, will actually help us meet our climate targets yeah. and create good jobs all across Canada in right. those communities in this kind of low carbon uh, economy. And that's just one aspect. You know, we need to be creating jobs in the retrofit industry. We need to be creating jobs in transit, in green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, we could actually be investing this money in ways that will create those jobs for Albertans and for our, for Canadians across Canada, and that simultaneously get us much closer to meeting our climate targets than we right. are right now. Okay. So let's use transit as an example, because I know there's been a lot of success in the building of transit, both in the CRD uh, Victoria area, um, whether it's uh, just bike lanes, for example, as well as uh, um, well, there's no there's no uh, Canada Line or LRT type system, but there's been that built here in Vancouver, yeah. um, and it's obviously as soon as they launch a new line, it's like completely goes to capacity right yeah. away, which is obviously a sign that it's needed. Needed. Um, but when you get into areas like rural Alberta, yeah. like how do you address transit in an environment like that i mean if you're if you're living in a place like red deer yeah. where you've got a population base of i don't know how many people live in a red deer maybe like a hundred thousand people and a lot of those people have jobs that they've got to commute to that are either going because there's not a ton of jobs in red deer itself yeah um and you got to drive a truck you know you got a family and they've got to go to school and they've got hockey practice afterwards or swimming practice or whatnot like how do you how do you address transit in that sense? Yeah, and honestly, our climate solutions, our solutions uh, for folks across Canada, need to be adapted to the the actual situation that people are in. Right. And so, you know, in a more urban center, yes, uh, LRT might be an option, mm -hmm. uh, electric buses, this kind of thing. Yeah. In more rural communities, it might be a combination of looking at what the rural transit options are, because I know uh, in BC, I've talked to many people in rural communities yeah. who can't get to a doctor's appointment because there is no, there's a bus every you know, twice every week. Right. Um, yeah. And so I actually talked to someone in my community just yesterday who actually was driving up to the middle of BC uh, to drive her mom to a doctor's appointment because there's no uh, rural bus transit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Uh, and so having... Up in Nathan Collins' old jurisdiction where he used to be. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the case up there, right? Right. And yeah. so we need these kind of rural bus solutions, those okay. kind of transit solutions. And we also need to look to how rapidly we can transition to electric vehicles. Yeah. And that means incentives. Um, it's great that the provincial government and the federal government are giving incentives. I would love to see us making electric vehicles here in Canada. And I'd love to see us incentivizing people to buy made-in-Canada electric vehicles. Right. Uh, 
we have a lot of people who are losing their jobs in the auto sector right now. Right. Uh, in southern Ontario, tens of thousands of people just lost their jobs. Yeah. And if we want those people to be able to transition into a low carbon economy, I think it means investing in an electric auto sector. Yeah. Um, those, you know, it will require some retraining. Yeah. I think that gov the government should step in and uh, support and provide that potentially through EI, potentially through other programs. Yeah. Uh, and so we need to actually create an electric vehicle um, kind of See, I love production, that I right? I love that idea of, of producing electric vehicles here. This is where you get into that challenge of, because I think the one thing that's ironically, um, I mean, they basically don't exist as a party at this point, but the People's Party of Canada, which is like this very right-wing kind of focused party, and you got the left-leaning NDP, the one thing that they both agree on is um, is corporate welfare. And like, we got to get rid of it. Yeah. No more subsidies for oil and gas companies. No more subsidies for companies like Loblaws and all these monster companies are making billions of dollars. Um, so when we talk about producing electric vehicles in Canada, yeah. I mean, how do we get there? Uh, do we create such high tariffs on cost of either Tesla importing their cars from California or from Hyundai that produces the Kona from bringing that over from, I think it's Korea, so that basically it makes it almost impossible for these car companies to import cars so that the car, is that how you do it? I don't know, because if you're not going to subsidize, I mean, the reason these plants in Oshawa, Ontario and other places have closed is because the federal government's just basically not not subsidizing, not sub subsidizing, and I don't like subsidies. I yeah. think that great, fine, let it fail and find something else. <laughs> I'm not, I'm a free market kind of person. But how do you how do you ma manage that? How do you get those kind of jobs, and how do you get a company like Tesla to, or do you just hope that some company's going to come along and create a new electric car? I mean, I think that there are ways to put uh, pieces of legislation in place that create the conditions for uh, an electric vehicle. Uh, plant or production, uh -huh. but I I think uh, we also need to incentivize consumers. Uh, so right now, I'm I'm not sure what we're at at this point. Potentially with five thousand dollars, maybe uh, with uh, the it's actually because uh, we, we just bought two electric okay. vehicles. My wife bought one a year ago, and then our company just bought uh, the very cheapest Tesla you could buy. Okay, and I think it was nine thousand dollars. Nine thousand. Okay, yeah, really great. amazing, mean, right? We bought it because of that. I mean, that's not the only reason, but because yeah. I'm like yourself, I want an electric vehicle. Absolutely. But, yeah. If you had had an incentive that uh, would have given you fifteen thousand dollars to buy a made in Canada electric vehicle. Potentially, that would yeah. be, uh, you know, we if we incentivize also consumers to be buying electric vehicles, buying made in Canada electric yeah. vehicles, it also means that you'll be providing more of a market for yeah. companies who do want to create. But isn't them. that in an indirect way another corporate subsidy? Like if you created a say a difference of incentives, you could okay, you can buy two electric cars. Yeah. One is an American one made by Elon Musk. That's nine thousand dollar rebate. Or you can buy this Canadian-made, and because there is a little small little company here in Vancouver that makes these one-seater electric cars, and you'll get fifteen thousand dollars off. I mean, isn't that in an indirect way just providing a corporate subsidy to that Canadian company? It definitely benefits that Canadian mm. company, but it mm. actually puts the money in the pocket of the Canadian, the everyday Canadian who is trying to buy an electric. But Canadians want to do their part. Right. They want to participate and uh, be involved in creating the kind of climate solutions that we need to face yeah. the. I would say crisis, but the challenge that we're in. Yeah. Um, and I think that by actually providing them with the tools they need, with the incentives they need to make those choices, I think it benefits everyone. Okay. Last question on this topic. Um, 
uh, and appreciate your, your your answers are great, and I'm really a I'm going to continue to challenge you here. Love it. Um, so going back to the rural Alberta, yeah. rural Saskatchewan, you want to switch to electric vehicles. Um, I love the idea of electric vehicles. I, I obviously am um, drinking the Kool Aid because I bought two, Wonderful. and I'm about to buy a third one. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I'm a hypocrite because I'm buying too many cars. Uh, but one of them's a business, and the other for my wife and I. So I I buy the I buy into the idea. And I love it here in BC because I know when I go and plug my car in, either where whether I'm in my building here at my home, it's being powered by BC Hydro, which is I think like 98% um, hydroelectric energy. So other than the initial impact of like, let's say take like a site C dam that's gonna be built and you've got this massive release of hydrocarbons, if that's the right term, from all the decomposing trees and when you create the flood and everything, there's some environmental impact in that sense. But then for the next, you know, 400 years, you'll have this electric dam that's producing um, electricity. Very low GHGs. Right. Very different from Alberta, where a lot of their electricity is coming from coal. Absolutely. Right. So, or, or coal or oil and gas. <laughs> or like, gas, or, absolutely. Natural gas, yeah. oil. So I guess my question to you, Laurel, is, okay, let's get, let's say we move fast forward and we get all these Albertans to convince them to, there's Hummers coming out soon with an electric <laughs> Hummer. So they yeah. go and buy their electric Hummer and they plug it at home. But at the end of the day, and at that point, yeah. you know, this is going to take a number of years. At okay. that point, I hope that we have built the kind of infrastructure that will connect grids between provinces so that we can actually have the uh, clean energy coming uh -huh. from other provinces uh, to Alberta. You know, the fact that we can't share that uh, clean energy is it's a problem yeah. uh, and it's one that we need to address. Can, I don't know how electricity works. Can you actually literally transport electricity across uh, hundreds of like maybe even like a thousand kilometers from the center of BC to the center of Alberta? You could yeah. absolutely build transmission lines. We, we can also think about um, the kind of more local electricity that can happen uh, within Alberta, uh, whether that's, well, on our coast, geothermal. Yeah. Um, I mean, they do have yeah. wind farms. Wind in, farms. In, um, What's that place called uh, in Turner Valley and, uh, oh, I forget the other name, but yeah. down in Southern Alberta. But honestly, we need all of these solutions. And uh -huh. I think the idea of a kind of cross Canada electric grid, uh, building those kind of connections so that we can transfer the power yeah. uh, is essential if we are going to meet the, the challenge that we're facing. Has the NDP ever actually sat down with the, like, do they have their own internal analyst, analysts who've actually crunched these numbers on a spreadsheet to actually be able to put pen to paper and say, this is how we would do it. Like if Jagmeet Singh was prime minister tomorrow, this is how we would take that $12 billion instead of putting the type pipeline. Yes. You guys have done that? We actually do. And it's a, I think it's a, it a based document? on, it's a public document. Uh, it's uh, based on, I think a $15 billion commitment. Okay. Uh, and if you want to look online, you can find it. It's called a new deal for the climate, okay. uh, power to change. Yeah. And it really lays out a plan of how we're going to get from where we are right now to the low carbon reality that we need to be at yeah. if we have any chance of addressing uh, the climate crisis. And so um, it does involve these kind of investments in green infrastructure, in uh, clean energy, in transit, in retrofits. Uh, it also uh, shows how that connection between, you know, social inequality and the climate crisis is needs to be at the heart of everything that we do. And so we're looking at how we create good jobs in all of those industries as we invest that money. We're looking at how we save Canadians money uh, because if we want people to get on board uh, in 
people's day-to-day lives. They are worried about paying bills. They're worried about uh, incentives work for dental care or yeah. for you know. Yeah. Um, and it's not easy to take those additional steps. So we need to make it easier for Canadians. And I do think the most effective climate solutions are the ones that do kind of hit all of those buttons. They mm-hmm. create good jobs. They make life more affordable. And they get us closer to our climate targets. Yeah. Uh, let's let's jump gears and um, let's spend a minute to talk about income inequality. Um, I've asked your... Um, colleague Don Davis to come on the show at some point too because he's yeah I'd love to have him on Um, I think he's a really neat guy Uh, and look a lot of these topics that we're covering I'm a big believer in what you guys are talking about I just where I struggle is seeing how we get there and so but this one is one where I I have a different view than I think the NDP do and, and I'll explain mine in a moment but can you talk to me for a moment about your view of the income inequality in our country today do you have a view on this um similar to Don's I don't know uh, I'm not sure kind of what element of Don's yeah. you're talking about, but uh, when I... Well, his is kind of, I mean, yeah. I don't know specifically, but he basically is saying like there's there's too many, there's too few people at the top. It's like the, it's like the Bernie Sanders, like there's, uh, you know, four billionaires that are four multi-billionaires that have all this money. And then there's like, you know, 90 million Americans that have the same amount of money, something like that. And, uh, you know, when I look at the kind of income inequality that exists in our world today, yeah, I, I think it's really problematic. Uh, seeing people who have billions and billions of dollars, well, there are people who are sleeping on the streets, who are struggling to make ends meet. I, yeah, it you know doesn't sit well with me, and I yeah. hope that we can create solutions in our communities and across Canada to address that. Um, one of the proposals that we put forward was a wealth tax. And so for um, folks who have more than $20 million in wealth, uh, it would be a 1% tax uh, so that we can, you know, address in a very small way uh, the income inequality, you know, get the people who owned more than $20 million of wealth to pay a little bit more of their fair share uh, and invest that in solutions that will support people who are struggling in our communities, who really need that support and uh, who we want to provide pharmacare and dental care and uh, the the kind of necessities in people's lives that they currently don't have. Okay. This is one question I've always had on this uh, on this um, strategy by or this uh, policy by the NDP, which is this wealth tax. Is that a 1% one time only or is the idea for it to be 1% annually? You know? I, that's a great question. I believe it's one percent annually. Um, okay. Let me double check and get back I'd to you. I should I should know because, that. <laughs> yeah, if you can find out because there's a big difference between. Uh, it's one percent annually. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Let me let me get back to you. Because that would imply that without any growth, yeah. that uh, an individual with uh, that with uh, twenty million dollars or more of wealth um, would, after twenty years, see their wealth decline by. 20%. So they would go from being worth $20 million to $16 million. Um, and that's just, I think that would be really interesting because there's never been any, I've looked a lot for this, so I'd be curious to know. I've never been able to see whether the NDP, because they, they, you, you've talked about this lots, but I've never been able to see whether this is an annual tax or a one-time tax. So that would be very interesting to know. I will get back to you. Um, the the question I have about wealth tax, you know, I'm I like Jagmeet Singh in many ways, but I'm also very critical of him. You know, there's a picture that he took of himself wearing a Canada Goose jacket. And look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the people that would be probably in the next few years affected by your wealth tax. 
So that's why I'm asking. I'm yeah. kind of giving a little bit of insight disclosure there probably. Um, uh, so not there yet, but I might be. Yeah. And I'm a taxpaying working Canadian. Yeah. I now pay, as of a few weeks ago, 53.5% tax in this, in this country. I'm told by politicians like yourself, yeah. I hear the term, I need to pay more of my fair share. Yeah. And I, we, I won't go down the rabbit hole of how discouraging it is to work your ass off to know that 53 cents on a, 53 and a half cents on every dollar you make goes to the government if you succeed, but if you fail, it's 100% on you. But I go back to uh, Canada Goose. The um, CEO of Canada Goose, whose father founded the company, um, and Jagmeet Singh's got this picture of himself. This is a well-known documented picture of him wearing like a 1200 Canada Goose jacket. And he says something like man up on this thing. And, it, and, it, and he's got this jacket. And I, did, I dove into Canada Goose's financials. And the CEO for Canada Goose relocated his residency to uh, Switzerland about four or five years ago. And now when bonuses are paid annually on to the CEO, they're paid in Swiss franc. Now, I don't have to dive into this much further to know that the reason this person's probably relocated to uh, Switzerland is for tax reasons. Um, he's obviously found that there's probably a better place tax because I, I mean, I'm sure Switzerland's probably a nice place to live, but I don't think it's better than Canada. I'm pretty biased here. So you got a guy like me staying in this country, employing people, working my butt off and paying full taxes. And then you've got a guy like this fellow who reloads Kate's so that if you do impose your wealth tax, it will affect people like myself who choose to stay in the country and the people who get their fancy accountants to do all this work and relocate their to become offshore citizens. Yeah. Because um, the guy doesn't live Switzerland, in Switzerland all the time, but he's, he's there enough to be able to claim that as his principal residence is now exempt from that. Yeah. How do you address something like that? It's a great question. And I think the beauty of the wealth tax that we proposed is that it is just 1%. The reason why it's not more is because they crunched the numbers and looked at what uh, what percentage would make people leave the country right. <laughs> uh, and move around their money. How much would it cost for people who own that much wealth to move around that money? Uh, and the analysis showed that a 1% tax, it would actually cost as much or more to kind of do that uh, moving around counting, exactly yeah. uh, than just to pay the one percent. There's also a piece around uh, this individual who has taken their money offshore. Yeah. And for the NDP, and we've been calling for this for years, uh, is to really close the loopholes in our tax system that allow right. people to evade Canadian taxes. And yeah. it is in the billions of dollars yeah. uh, that we're losing because companies are taking their money offshore. And if we actually, uh, Murray Rankin was uh, you know, a great lead on this file for a long time. Uh, if we implemented the kind of uh, closing of the loopholes that are needed, we wouldn't be losing those billions of dollars to folks moving their money offshore. And then we would also um, be able to not only invest that money that is currently being taken offshore right now, yeah. but then also if we implemented the wealth tax, then also invest that money ideally in things like universal pharmacare, dental care, uh, into affordable housing. You know, there are people in our country who are sleeping on the streets, who are sleeping in precarious situations, who are struggling every day just to pay their bills, who are worried about losing their home, losing the roof over their head. And in a country as wealthy as Canada, it is unacceptable. It's unacceptable that we are not taking care of the people in our community. I totally uh, agree with you. Yeah. And yeah. I, 
Like I just my my main question there, Laurel, is um, I think maybe this was what, what my question was: is um, does the government need more tax dollars? I mean, my view is once you get to pass fifty percent, entrepreneurs like myself, which has happened over the last three weeks, I spent more time than I have in the last five years in talking to my tax accountants and lawyers. I only had a tax lawyer. I didn't even have a tax accountant. Now I've hired a tax accountant to find every single way I can possibly go because my tax lawyer has been giving me these strategies for years. And I said, just like your point, I've said, Tim, you know what? It's too much work. It's, uh, it's too much time consumption. Yeah, I'll save 10000 here, 20000 there, maybe a hundred grand. But you know what? I'm happy to pay my taxes. I live in a great country. I've got a lot of benefits. I don't want people banging on my door, homeless people, or you know, having my kids being kidnapped. Like we live in a great country, yeah. and we benefit from the taxes that are paid. We benefit right. in our healthcare system. But now I'm at fifty-three and a half percent tax. Yeah. Because of the increases that the Liberal government have done, and then the local NDP have done, and now my turn. I now I'm going. This isn't right. This is just no way that a hardworking person, whether you're a struggling person trying to come up through this in, in, income, uh, social inequality that you talk about, or someone like myself who's busting my I didn't come from a wealthy family. I came from a small town, Port Alberni, middle-class family. My parents still have debt. I've had to lend money to them. I've been that kind of American dream, all I call it the Canadian dream success story. And I've created 25 full-time jobs out of this. Um, but now all of a sudden my focus is not so much on growing more jobs. My focus is on how do I get the government from stopping taking so much of my money? And that's the concern I have, Laurel, is like, does the government actually really need more money? Because I see tons of government waste all the time on things like $12 billion in a pipeline, as an example. Absolutely. So do we need more there, money? There, need more money? <laughs> so I think both of these things are true. One is that absolutely $12.6 billion on the construction of a pipeline, buying a pipeline for $4.6 billion, <laughs> very wasteful. Let's use that money better. Yeah. And I do think that, um, you know, I like you, I grew up in a, uh, you know, I grew up in poverty um, and uh, I saw my mom struggle when she was raising three kids. Um, and I think about um, a single mom now living in Victoria, uh, my community, if, you know, they, if that single mom has to pay for childcare. Uh, she has to work uh, potentially multiple jobs. If she wants to afford an average apartment, um, if she has three kids, she wants multiple bedrooms, she would have to be working over 100 hours a week. Yeah. Uh, if and she's, then how does she possibly raise her family? <laughs> how does she possibly raise her yeah. family? And so I do think that we need government investing in the services that people depend on. And universal health care is, you know, I'm so grateful to live in a country that provides that. I think uh, we saw it in our country's past when Tommy Douglas really pushed for universal health care. There was a lot of backlash. People said, why are we going to be taxing citizens to invest? Why does government need more money to put it into this system? And now we all benefit from our, our healthcare system, which is so vital if we yeah. want to be keeping our citizens healthy and to not have that vast income inequality that we see uh, in the United States and around the world. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue into the dental plan. Great. And, and I'll leave that with you just to contemplate because there are entrepreneurs like myself who, you're right. I mean, if you put a 1%, I'm not, I still, I'm not there yet, yeah. but if I do get there and you start charging me 1% on my wealth, yeah. I'm not going to move. But and it's going to really 
piss me off. Like yeah. it's going to make me feel resentful. Mm. And I think one thing I'd like to leave with you, Laurel, uh, now for you to contemplate is how much waste there is in government. Because mm. there's a ton of waste. And yeah. it's not just the pipeline because um, some people won't agree with that. Some will. I think I'm on your and you're in your camp on that one. I think it's foolish that we bought the pipeline. Yeah. And I think there's you've, you've made a really good case for this clean economy that we can invest in. But man, there's a lot of waste out there. And as someone who runs a tight business, and I wouldn't let my business run that way, I, I would ask you to continue to just keep your eye sharp on, on the amount of waste that goes on. Because I don't actually think the government needs more money. I think they just need to reallocate it in a better way. That's my little, my view. <laughs> um, but I totally agree that money needs to be going to people like single moms who are trying to raise a family because you can't raise children that will become good you know, citizens it's when, really hard. Really hard. In an economy. I can't even yeah. imagine. I, yeah. I fortunately, fortunately for me, didn't have to deal with that as a child. But okay, let's. This is a great segue into um, into universal dental care. Is that what would you call it? Yeah. You know, uh, our proposal is to have people who make less than ninety thousand dollars a year yeah. be covered uh, with dental care. Uh, and our most recent motion, which was actually put forward by Don Davies, um, uh, was around adjusting the tax cut that the Liberals had proposed uh, so that it benefits people who make less than $90,000 a year. And the savings, the millions of dollars that you would save by uh, not doing that tax cut for people who earn over $90,000, over. Okay. Um, invest that money into dental care. And so, you know, our dental care proposal was about $1.8 billion, uh, the price tag on it, and the savings that you'd get if you decided not to go forward with the liberal tax cut for folks who earn over, individuals who earn over $90,000 a year would be $1.6 million. Okay. And so it would make it very affordable to actually roll this out. Yeah, and have okay. dental care available to people who, you know, if you're uh, company, if you're the company that you work for doesn't provide it for you, it is very expensive. I was door knocking and I uh, met a young man who told me he had $3,000 of work that he needed done on his teeth, that he was in pain every day, that oftentimes he wouldn't be able to go to work because of the pain. Uh, that And so as soon as he heard us talking about dental care, he was so excited because he works in the gig economy, means he doesn't have coverage. Uh, and and for when, those listeners that, because I had to look this up recently, what is yeah. the giga economy? What does that mean? <laughs> you know, he's working, um, I think he was working in lighting and video work, uh, which means he gets gigs. He gets uh, temporary contracts. Um, oh, that's what and it so means. oftentimes he'll be working uh, sometimes multiple contracts or one contract and then another contract. None of it would have any kind of no dental care. There's no reduction exactly. in EI and all yeah. that kind of stuff. No yeah. dental coverage or medical coverage. Precisely. Okay. Okay, so I've got an example. As as uh, as you know, my wife is a dentist, yeah. and so she gave us this list to work from as a simple case example. But before we get into this uh, example, can you just clarify for me what the NDP is proposing as to who gets coverage and who wouldn't? Does it everybody? Like, would you? So no, it would be people who make less than ninety thousand dollars a year Family annually. Income or individual? individuals. I see. Okay, so if you have two working professionals that are each making $70,000 a year and raising a family of two or three, they would qualify, qualify. under this. Okay. If you have another family where, um, so let's say, for example, you have a family with two husband and wife are working and they've got, they're making 70000 a year, so 140000 a year. Then you've got another family B where um, the wife is working and the husband, which is not very common, but the husband's a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. 
and the wife is making 120,000 a year. Yeah. So 20,000 less than the previous family, but the husband's a stay-at-home dad. They yeah. would not qualify. It's a great or, question and I think when you have Don on, you can press him okay, about I'll his the details so of his motion a little bit more. I will okay. I will absolutely. Okay. Um, right. and he'll be able to talk to you a little bit more about the nitty-gritties of that. Yeah. Um, and how uh, kind of who's covered and who qualifies. The principle behind it yeah. is that you know, folks who are struggling to get dental care, who uh, might have a cavity or who might need fillings or a root canal or whose kids need that yeah. uh, and they can't afford it on the income that they have. Yeah. The idea is that we actually provide a system yeah. that allows them to go and get their kids cavity fixed yeah. or to do regular checkups because we see time and time again, people end up in the emergency room. It actually costs our healthcare system more to deal with those kind of emergency uh, procedures than it would if we just invested in the upfront cost. Absolutely. And I, I've completely bought into this idea. I love the idea. Um, and maybe we'll, maybe I will not spend too much time on this because we will get Don on here and he sounds like he's going to maybe have more details around this. I should point out for the listeners, by the way, that UBC has a dental, and a lot of people, a lot of people don't know this, Laurel, um, but if you're in the lower mainland and you can't afford dental coverage, you should contact the UBC Dental School because my wife used to be a student there. She actually does, still works there a little bit um, teaching. And you can actually get near free, if not free, dental coverage through the school as long as you're willing to put the time in. Because they have dental students who need to work, the fourth year students, they need to work on actual real patients, not on, on dummies or whatever you call the uh, um, dolls. And so uh, if you have a need for dental coverage, they do get a lot of low income families that go out there, but a lot of people, they don't, it's not well advertised. Amazing. So, yeah. yeah, that's a great program to hear about. Yeah, it's really good. So I don't, I'm assuming other dental schools do it as well. The only dental program in BC is at UBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you can go out there and you can get all sorts of dental work done for near free. Uh, it's just that the everything that these students do has to be checked yeah, before it's completed. So what might take a 45-minute procedure at your dentist office might take an hour and a half. Takes a little bit more time, yeah. yeah so. Well, for the folks who live in this area, that's a really great resource. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So... So let's, okay, so let's dive into this example. So my wife wrote upper molar cuspus breaks. So I think what she means is one of the back molars uh, breaks. And so I asked her, I said, okay, Crystal, what would be the different options? And so where I want to get from this from you, Laurel, and maybe you hopefully know the answer is under the NDP model, where would this decision-making occur? Would this be by the patient? Would it be by the government or by the dentist? So this is an example where she said, okay, so this tooth breaks, the upper back molar, so the first option, which is the most, the cheapest one, is just prescribing a bunch of pain medication to the, the patient and tell them to go away, mm-hmm. um, which basically costs next to nothing. There's no medication, like a bottle of Tylenol. Obviously not. The, not no, ideal. Wants, not no. Ideal. Nobody <laughs> wants that. Second option is a pull, just pull the tooth. And that's what most patients get today. Mm-hmm. If you don't have proper dental coverage, you go in, you have your tooth pulled. And that costs anywhere from 70 to $200. Mm-hmm. Option number three is what she's written here is a simple amalgam filling. So metal filling with the people who worried about the mercury and whatnot. And that costs $125. This doesn't include pins or protection for the pulp. So that's $125 versus let's call it roughly around $100 for an extraction. But of course, keep in mind if you, um, the net, or sorry, that's the amalgam filling. Fourth option would be a composite, they call it, or she's written tooth colored fillings. Those are the white fillings. Mm-hmm. A little bit more expensive. It goes from $125 to $155. The next after that, the next best treatment would be what they call a partial flipper denture, uh, which costs around $300 for the most basic. 
The sixth one, which is what anybody who's got dental coverage would probably get, which is called a crown, yeah. is $1,000. And that's where they basically cut off part of the tooth and then they put a new sort of formed tooth in there. And then the fourth one, which is an implant, is where they literally pull the whole thing, put a post in, and then put in a new tooth. It looks real fancy. It's $3,500. And I'm sure if you wanted a gold <laughs> gold, uh, gold tooth like uh, one of these uh, OG uh, gangster raptor guys, you could go up even higher. <laughs> so you can see the massive difference here. Between yeah. an extraction, let's just call it 100 bucks, to a full implant at 3500 Yeah. There's a big difference there. And if you're talking that and you, you, you extrapolate across millions of Canadians getting coverage across the country. It's a make, huge difference, yeah. right? So who makes this decision? Uh, you know, I think that any kind of dental care plan as it was rolled out would be done in collaboration with dentists, with healthcare professionals, with, you know, everyday Canadians. We would be getting the input of the people who are going to directly impact yeah. to find the solution that's going to best meet the needs, needs of Canadians. And what I would like to see is that you know, when someone has dental care currently uh, under most uh, dental care plans, I would like to see Canadians who currently don't have access to that and are struggling to afford it have that same kind of coverage. Right. You know, so in this case, you know, some in five and cases, six. I'll, I can tell right? you the answer that would yeah. be, yeah, it would be probably five or six. Yeah. Like, Seven would be something you'd have to pay for on top. Exactly. If your insurance provider was doing this for you. Yeah. And we're not uh, proposing that if someone wants to get something uh, kind of aesthetic uh, or yeah. done on their teeth, that that wouldn't be covered. Nothing that wouldn't be covered under a regular dental uh, care plan yeah. would be kind of covered under this, uh, you know, government uh, dental care plan. Yeah. But it would mean that folks who do have, you know, one of their molar cusps breaking, yeah. uh, that they're not going to be living in pain yeah. or, you know, I was talking with Judd Meat uh, about our dental care plan, and he told me a story about a woman who approached him, who approached him with her hand over uh, her face and spoke to him the whole time like this, and he was kind of curious what was going on. And then she let him know that actually she lost all of her teeth and she couldn't afford to replace them. Right. Uh, and so she couldn't really get a job because of uh, her appearance. It yeah. was impacting her ability to make money. It was ability. It was obviously impacting her ability to, you know, communicate and have relationships. And you know, when we see people in our community who are struggling like that, I hope that we can come together and find solutions that are really going to work for them. Look, I, you, you, <laughs> you've, you've. I'm, you're preaching to the converted here. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely uh, think it would be a phenomenal move society-wise yeah. to see. Because if you think about it, like if you were a Martian coming from another planet, coming down to this country, and you said, "Oh, everybody gets universal health care, but they don't get medical, they don't get dental care." Like right? the, the somehow your teeth are teeth different are than your legs, or exactly, it's, it's just it's, wild. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. <laughs> but it's of course a result of just the long history of the way in which the world has unfolded. But going back to this as yeah. an example, um, let's pull out the implant as yeah. being an extreme one. But you got crowned at $1,000 and extraction at $100. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the NDP's already thought of this. Like, who would make that decision? Like, if someone's got to make the decision because the money's going to have to be spent. And someone's got to make it's, it's either the, To me, there's only one of three pe options. It's either the patient decides. And if they're deciding, they're going to probably say, well, I'll take the crown. It's the dentist who decides. And... 
they're probably indifferent, although they're probably going to get paid more on a crown than they would on doing an extraction. So they'll probably lean towards the crown. But if it's the government that's deciding, if I was the government wanting to make sure that I'm not spending too much, I'm going to probably go with the extraction. So I mean, who makes that call? Think about it in the context of a dental care plan uh, that is provided by uh, you know, a provider to a company. Yeah. You know, similarly, someone has to make that call. They've laid out the the rules. Yes. When you go into the dentist. So um, you would propose to have it similar to how very corporate dental plans work? Very similar. Okay. Um, well, then I can tell you the answer to that. Yeah. So what happens is that the patient will typically take whatever the highest option is yeah. before they have to start paying themselves. That's the option. So if, if the, using this as an example, mm-hmm. so if option seven, which is an implant at $3,500 is not covered, Available. but the crown is, mm-hmm. then the patient's going to elect for that and the dentist is likely going to elect for that as well. So you guys would have a, basically a sort of payment schedule, so to speak, where you'd say, okay, look, if you have a patient covered under our universal dental care program, here's what they call the fee guide, as they say in the, in the, in the medical world. And this is the fee guide. And so if Andrew Johns comes in, who's making more than 90000 a year, and he's got, he'll do whatever he wants. Okay, you let him be treated the way he wants to be. But then uh, Ross comes in, and he's making less than 90000 a year. Um, he's got these, this is his limited options. Is that the idea, effectively? I mean, yeah, if you, I, that is how I'm envisioning. Honestly, yeah. Don Davies is the person who put forward this uh, dental okay. care motion. Right, Don, and he'll have get you in here. all of the specifics. But yeah. uh, I think... It's right now, if you go in, uh, you have all of those options available. Uh, if Ross goes in, <laughs> depending on his dental yeah. care plan, he'll have a certain amount of options. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, when I go to the dentist now, I'm covered under a plan through my Government of Canada employer. Yeah. Uh, and I have a limited number of options. Yeah, so you understand. <laughs> you know yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, I would just love to see... Uh, folks in our community who don't have access to that I do, to be able I do to, too, right? Laurel, I, <laughs> yeah. I do too. Like, don't get my yeah. challenge. Yeah, on no, this. it's great. I, I totally want everybody to get coverage too because it yeah. just doesn't make sense that people don't have coverage. I'm just trying to understand the how the mechanic proposes how to pay for this. And, and then the other question I want to go, yeah. we won't sp- just yeah. maybe before you jump, yeah. the how you pay for it is yeah. really around, you know, what we've proposed right now is just not doing that uh, tax cut for folks who are making over $90,000 a, a year. You know, that amount of money, they've crunched the numbers and it would pay for almost this dental care plan entirely. Um, has it taken in consideration, this is where I wanted to finish off yeah. with this topic, has it taken in consideration um, that there would be probably need to be a far more dentist practicing out there? And dentists right now, the um, healthcare system you can break down the service and the infrastructure into two categories. The services provided by the doctors, the infrastructure is paid by the government effectively. The doctors come in, they do their service, they have a billing fee and they, they get paid based on that. But when you go to see your GP or you go to get um, your ear, ear eyes note was an ENT doctor to get your ears checked or whatever, all that coverage on the infrastructure side is paid for by the government. On the dental world, so you get people like my wife, Crystal, mm-hmm. and I mean, she doesn't have a practice, but people who own practices, they've invested millions of dollars in their practice. Are you going to mandate that these dentists have to take on these patients or are you going to create like more of a market environment where they're going to get paid the same that they would get paid on a person like Ross who's using a, a private insurer or are you going to have a third, like a, a two-tiered 
dental systems. So you've got some dentists who get paid directly by the government and the government creates its own dental offices. Like how do you guys? Propose? I mean, we have a great model um, yeah. that we can look to in our healthcare system. And we have an example of switching over from uh, you know, non-universal healthcare system to a universal healthcare system. Okay. Uh, and part of the the thing that needs to happen is actually consulting with the practitioners. So right. when that, you know, when Tommy Douglas pushed really hard for universal healthcare uh, in a minority government situation, actually passed it, there were lots of doctors who were vehemently opposed to it happening, uh, partially because of the question that you're asking, you know, how does it actually impact people's livelihoods? How is it going to impact people's practices? But we have seen that, you know, there are ways to institute these kind of dental care, healthcare programs, and we have to do it in consultation with the practitioners who are going to bring a lot of knowledge and experience and be able to inform how it actually needs to be rolled out. Right. Okay. Good. Well, I won't push you on this much more, Laurel, because you've already spent a lot of time on it. And but let, let's get Don in to talk Wonderful. about this one. Wonderful. Yeah. No, I, I love this topic. Put the bug in his ear. Yeah. I love what you're doing, Laurel. Uh, for full disclosure, I did donate to your uh, campaign, and and I, thank I've you been, for that. Yeah, you're welcome. My wife did. Uh, uh, we were working on our taxes and making sure that we spread out our <laughs> our, our tax. Well, thank receipts. her for that, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, I think what you're doing is a great. I love what you're. I love your um, passion for this, and I agree with most of what you're doing. And it's been really refreshing to be able to sit down with a politician who will get into specifics. I think you've got a really bright future in front of you, and I hope wish you the best. And thanks for coming in today. Well, thank you so much yeah. for having me on. And get Don Davis on. Okay, I Don? will. Okay. I'll try my best. All right, <laughs> Laurel Collins, MP for Victoria. Is it called Victoria Center? Just Victoria. Victoria. Laurel Collins for MP for Victoria with the uh, with the federal NDP. Thanks for on, being on the show today. Thanks again. Thanks, Laurel.